0: Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.
1: If we can talk to people about their brain health and the things that they can do to stimulate good brain health, maybe also diet, maybe also in the area of cognitive stimulation, that then provides their brain the best chance of avoiding some of these conditions as they get older.
0: Hi, it's Hilton Copy with you again. Today we're going to talk about the 12 risk factors which are understood to increase a person's risk of developing a dementia. Or, another way to look at it, 12 factors that could help to slow the onset of dementia. As always, my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia are here, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Stephanie Daly. So I know we often think about dementia as being a condition of older people, but as we'll hear from James in a little while, the changes that occur in the brain begin in our 40s. And so some of the things, the factors that can be modified to help slow the onset or uh, reduce the likelihood of developing a dementia, some of those things if we pay attention to them while we're in our 40s will not only help our general health but also perhaps reduce our risk of developing a dementia.
2: Yeah, that's right, Hilton. So I met up with the director of the um, Wicking Dementia Research and Education Centre, Professor James Vickers, and his background is in neuroscience and particularly, I guess, focusing on the brain. And we talked about these 12 areas of risk that have recently been highlighted in the MJA. I think one of the interesting things here is that actually as GPs, we do a lot of this work already. So, you know, I'll be interested to hear what you think when... James talks more about these risk factors.
1: We're pretty confident about a number of these factors, and there are a number of other factors that people are interested in from a research point of view but are still in the grey zone. One of the most valuable contributions to this area recently has been in publications from The Lancet, Called the Lancet Commission and they did one particularly on dementia and Alzheimer's disease a few years ago mm-hmm. which covered prevention and they just recently updated that in 2020. So we're up to 12 factors that, yeah. that the epidemiological studies tell us are important. Now keep in mind this is evidence based on mostly retrospective large-scale cohorts studies, but they've looked really across the world in different populations to see where there's consistency, I suppose, in what that research message is. So we know we're pretty confident about these factors and that that around about 40% of dementia risk could be largely ascribed to those factors. But we're less certain that if you did something about those factors in your own life, how much that would quantitatively change your risk. And when we think about risk, it is probably not so much that you will not get dementia, but if you were on the track to get dementia, you would get it later. Right, so, so
2: it's sort of slowing down the onset potentially yeah, of, so of getting disease.
1: delaying the onset or conversely developing a resilience to the accumulating pathology of these diseases. So if we take something like Alzheimer's disease, we're, again, fairly certain that it starts to develop in your brain 10, maybe 20 years before you'll see over clinical uh, symptoms. So there's really a lot of people walking around who are are fairly cognitively intact but probably have the beginnings of pathology inside their brain. So I guess on, on one side, some of these factors might be about modifying the disease trajectory and then some other factors are about how you might resist the accumulation of that pathological burden inside your brain.
2: So there's 12 factors that have been identified.
1: Yeah, so they're often referred to as the population attributable fraction. So that if you were to take out that risk factor, relatively, how much of the population would would gain that benefit? So some have a high population attributable fraction, and some have less of a fraction. But but some of these do cluster around your general physical health, and they're they're risk factors for many other chronic and degenerative conditions, things like hypertension, obesity, smoking, not being physically active. So those things seem to be really important, not just for dementia, but probably for a whole variety of conditions. So it could be part of a health check in any case. Some are more specific, I guess, for what's going on inside your brain. So we think, again, social isolation might be an important risk factor for dementia. So perhaps people being more socially engaged would be a positive thing there's an overlap also with psychiatric conditions such as depression depression seems to be a risk factor for dementia but it's a bit tricky because sometimes dementia in its early stages can look a little bit like depression as well too so you know if somebody's got a something that looks a bit like depression it's good to get that looked at very carefully
2: yeah diabetes is another one i guess that is a risk factor but also comes about often through poor lifestyle alcohol
1: alcohol's had a spotty evidence relationship to towards dementia risk and there was a feeling for quite a while there that moderate intake of alcohol might have been a, a good thing but now the the advice is that more than 21 units a week is likely to then start to play out in terms of heightened risk of dementia so maybe not necessarily eliminating but cutting back on alcohol intake might be a good thing
2: and of course um smoking is going to be in there as well yes, in terms smoking of smoking
1: is a big one one of the really big factors that has surprised a lot of people but the evidence again seems to be fairly strong is around hearing loss and particularly hearing loss around middle age we don't really understand why that's the case maybe something organic or something to do with how the brain is processing sensory information which is you know perhaps early disease or it could be that if you start to lose your hearing you become a more socially isolated mm. and that might not be good for your brain over a period of time but that's something again that if you could detect that as early as possible that's eminently treatable
2: so hearing loss is an interesting one isn't it because that's sort of been out there for a while but I've never really had it explained I guess in that that setting that it could be that there's an organic something organic going on in, in the brain or it could be that that leads to social isolation mm. but important when we're seeing people with hearing loss to to talk to them about the fact that it could increase their risk of dementia, again, which might motivate them to actually do something about it. Because hearing loss is one that people don't like to do mm. much about. Mm. And particularly as people are getting older, they seem to be resistant to hearing loss. But again, if you've got a carrot that you can talk to people about, that if you can you know, address this now, it might reduce your risk mm. or delay the progression or the onset of a dementia. Because
1: there's two things we already know about dementia. One, there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. Broadly throughout the, the community. But the second one that is it's a very a fearful condition. So mm-hmm. a lot of people, when they start to reach middle life and their older years, they become very fearful of dementia. Now that's, that's, you want to reduce that as much as possible. Um, cause you know, your real risk of developing dementia doesn't really go up a lot until your late seventies and into your eighties. But conversely, there may well be a great motivator for you to address some of those risk factors, which are really important for. For general health as well and Mm. one of the things that we're moving more towards is very difficult to remember the 12 factors you know off the cuff but if we can talk to people about their brain health and the things that they can do to stimulate good brain health including those areas we described maybe also diet maybe also in the area of cognitive stimulation then that then provides their brain the best chance of avoiding some of these conditions as they get older
2: So is this where the Sudoku comes in?
1: Yeah, what we know probably from work that's been done on people who are relatively unaffected by neurodegenerative condition that basically if you do any kind of single cognitive task a lot over and over and over again and and rehearse it, you'll get really good at that task. But it doesn't necessarily generalise to other areas of function. Probably the idea of undertaking something that has some complexity is a good thing then also mixing it up so um, switching between complex mental tasks looks like a very positive thing for keeping a very healthy brain so sudoku in the morning and maybe you know playing bridge or something like that or learning a language in the afternoon but the, so the idea of of shifting your tasks seems to be a better way than just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again.
2: So the 12 factors that they talk about there is something about the level of education you've attained when you're younger. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: It's listed as a modifiable risk factor, but probably by the time you get interested in risk for dementia, it's probably a bit late. But the number of years you had of education early in your life or educational attainment is linked in a a dose-related fashion to your risk of dementia later in life. So the more education you have early in life, the less risk you have Of developing dementia later in your life and at the moment we don't think that that's necessarily doing anything about the underlying pathology of the disease but does play into this idea of resistance and maybe extra years of education provides you with the ability to to develop many different neural pathways for doing the same task so there's a bit of redundancy in the system and this is conceptually is often referred to as cognitive reserve so okay when you when you get older you may well be developing something like Alzheimer's disease and and you are losing connections but there are enough other connections that will functionally compensate for that initial amount of pathology. does does mean they don't get dementia but they get dementia at a later age. When they do get dementia they actually often progress a lot faster because they've sort of been masking the effects of the disease for a long period of time. Probably a lot of it is about that idea of complex mental stimulation so when you're at school yes you're listening to some teacher telling you facts and about, about the world, but you're also are required to do, often to do assignments and essays and, and homework and then exams and all of those things at a level of complexity to that mental stimulation. And we have a project we're doing in the Wicking Center is looking at a cohort of older adults who have come back into education, in this case, university level education. And we've been following those for now 10 years or so. And we are seeing benefits in, in certain areas of cognitive function and we hope that this will then add a bulwark if you like you know if they were then to start to develop the pathology of some um, disease related to dementia.
2: So that's the healthy brain project? Yes. Yeah right I guess uh, what's going through my mind now is I've got a colleague who's a um, GP who's sort of specialised in paediatrics and he's always talking about the importance of the first thousand days of life and I guess really that plays into this whole concept of the more you can set down early in life to set someone up to be able to stay at school longer and to do education is actually really important in terms of perhaps um, maintaining healthy brains.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. But is this a tricky public health message? Because uh, I guess telling a a middle-aged person who may have had some experience of dementia in their life, be it professionally or through the family, um, they have a different set of motivations to to potentially do something about their dementia risk as opposed to, you know, kids who would see these as conditions that, you know, they may have had very little exposure to or happen somewhere long time in the distance. Mm. Um, and so again, motivating younger people to do something about dementia risk actually turns out to be quite tricky.
2: So I guess the other question I get asked commonly in general practice is mum had dementia and her mum had dementia what's my risk of getting dementia?
1: We know that there are versions of, of dementia that are very highly genetic, so you can link them back to a genetic mutation across a number of different genes. But basically, if, if there's a very strong pattern of inheritance, then it usually it's a good idea to chase down to see whether there is a genetic mutation. Now, that's only really going to be for a small proportion of people with dementia anyway. So for the rest of us, it's more about genetic risk factors. And there's one standout one called apolipoprotein E, and there are variations in this gene that occur naturally in the population. And so there are versions of that gene that are helpful. So you've got one version that will decrease your risk, but another version of that gene which does increase your risk, which probably means instead of maybe getting dementia in your 80s, you might get it in your mid to late 70s. So it seems to bring forward the clinical features of the disease. That one dominates the genetic landscape. We also know there is a whole suite of other genetic variations that also play out in terms of risk now, but individually, how much they contribute is very small. But, but scientists are now looking at trying to put those together in what we call a polygenic risk score to see again whether you can identify people out there who are at most risk of developing dementia. So that's that's a field that's getting quite interesting. Now, you only can get access to those polygenic risk scores in a research context at the moment. But I would see it won't be too long before if you wanted that kind of test that you could get that ordered. Then the big question is, is whether you want to know, do you, are you at, at higher risk or at lower risk? I guess if you knew you were at higher risk, you'd probably start to do a lot of these other things around the modifiable risk factor side of the equation. Yeah. Conversely, if you're at relatively low risk, then you may well, you know, decide you want to sit on the beach and, stare at the sky and not do anything
0: yeah so I thought it was interesting hearing from James who very much comes from a neuroscience background and a research background but I guess our challenge as GPs is how can we apply the research and the work that he's been doing at Wicking when we've got a patient sitting in front of us so I'll throw it over to you, Steph and Marita. What were your take-home messages about the practical applications of what James was saying?
2: Well, I think part of the good news story there is that as GPs, we're already doing a lot of uh, work around most of those risk factors, to be honest, because we're doing that in the setting of cardiovascular health and um, stroke prevention, uh, diabetes management, Um, other chronic diseases, COPD. So we're already in that space and doing a lot of that stuff on a day-to-day basis. I guess um, of real interest to me, I guess, was the hearing loss, because it seems like that is a big factor, whether it's a marker of brain change or disease, or just that it leads to more social isolation. I feel like that's probably something that will be useful to have conversations with patients about because they're often so reluctant to, to do anything about hearing loss. So, yeah, I found I found those the, the big tickets, and I did particularly like that you don't have to stop alcohol altogether.
0: Well, it's always reassuring, and it is interesting how we could pick out the... Um the good news for us as individuals and maybe with selective deafness leave the other things to one side. But you mentioned, Marita, around um, people uh, having some resistance about doing something with regard to their hearing, which brings up the concept of motivation. And as GPs, we're talking with our patients about making changes. We call it lifestyle changes. Steph, what what are your thoughts about uh, this issue of motivating our patients to do something different in the realm of dementia, perhaps versus heart health or cardiovascular health?
3: Mm. Well, I think as GPs, we're quite used to attempting to get people to motivate towards change. And change is really hard for patients. So when you've got these 12 risk factors, which could be quite overwhelming for people, especially if they're already frightened about getting a diagnosis of dementia, maybe we need to think about different ways to express that and to talk to people about what motivates them. And one of the things that I always use in my consults is a little story about my granddad, who was a lifelong smoker. And um, his wife died of emphysema. She had really, really bad um, disease and was on oxygen. And he carried on smoking. And he smoked right up until he was in his 80s. And nothing would get him to stop smoking until he developed a hernia. And the surgeon said to him, look, I'm sorry, but you're just too frail now to have an operation. Um, And he said, well, what can I do about this hernia? And he said, well, one thing you could do for yourself is to stop coughing. And he said, well, how... how can i do that and the surgeon said well well you could stop smoking so that might be a um something that would help and he stopped smoking at the age of 83 and he lived another 3 years and his hernia didn't get any worse and i used that um story to talk to people about things that motivate you. It doesn't have to be the fear of dementia. It could just be that living a healthier lifestyle and doing something that you're socially engaged in that you enjoy in is actually protective for the future. But that might be the thing that motivates you, that it's something that you enjoy doing rather than that you're trying to prevent a disease. So each individual, I guess you need to tailor your motivational interviewing style to that individual and just giving lectures about... This is bad for you. This is bad for you. Doesn't always work.
0: In fact, it rarely works. <laughs> so that finding that personal kernel that is of meaning to people I'll often ask them the question how do you imagine yourself or your life in five to ten years time so to use their imagination to move them forward um, smoking could be example do you see yourself as a smoker in five or ten years and then to use their imagination well no how might you stop what might motivate you to stop and then bring it back to the present time.
3: One of the other things I thought was interesting that James said was this concept of a brain health check, which I think is really important. We look after all the other organs. So we have a cardiovascular health check, a diabetes health check. And so why why do we just leave the brain to get on with it you know we should be targeting some kind of health check to the brain and one of the things about doing that is it raises awareness and destigmatizes dementia because the more that you talk about it the more it becomes something that everybody is comfortable um, discussing and, and coming to the doctor or going to speak to anybody about it. So it breaks down that community the, the barriers that are there. So I think that we should be we should be discussing a healthy brain as clinicians really.
2: And that I guess leads on to this area of uh, you know, performing complex tasks as we've highlighted and James talked about, you know, doing the crossword will make you good at crosswords and the importance of actually getting people to, to look at doing a multiple array of different complex tasks. If they wanna, you know, engage in that sort of protective or the building up of cognitive reserve that, you know, James talks about. So it might mean that, you know, you might still get dementia, but you'll be able to compensate for a lot longer. So instead of having it in your 70s, it will come in your 80s. And I know I'd prefer it later than earlier.
3: Mm. And you can also combine some of these risk factor things together. So we talk about exercise, but also social engagement. So, you know, my mum plays bowls and that's exercise and, you know, mental arithmetic because you have to add up the different ends that they play um but also things like park run that's a social engagement you're meeting up with people it's free you know we we as 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 clinicians should just be publicizing those sorts of things because they're available to everybody and it's part of your overall well-being you know
2: and do you two find in clinic you do have like i lots of people coming in thinking that because mum had dementia i'm going to get dementia Mm. i thought that was useful what James told us about the genetic risk and that actually pure sort of genetic risk is only a very small percentage of cases of dementia but they're talking more now about these polygenic risks so you might have multiple um, risk factors that at this point in time I guess are in the research setting only but that might be something that's going to I guess come up soon and so being able to talk to patients a little bit about the fact that you know there may be some genetic risk but like all these things who's going to want to know
3: if they are at higher risk. And it may be that some of these risk factors switch on those genes. Yeah. You know, that if you, if you treat some of these risk factors, you can avoid that.
2: Yeah. So I guess we, you know, we think about if you've got the genes for celiac disease, for example. Yeah. And we can test people's genes that. for that. Doesn't mean they're going to get the disease. Yeah. Something triggers it. You know, again, we're
3: not sure what it is it's in that. It inv- could be an environmental factor or yeah. whatever.
2: So it's good to, that we've got some of this information. I hope the GPs are finding it useful as a way of discussing this with their patients.
0: Yeah, and I guess the takeaway message for me is that as uh, in our training, we talk about risk factors. But from listening to James, we should be really talking about health factors. So looking at it in a positive light. And for those of you who, like me, might have trouble remembering the 12 health factors for a healthy brain, we'll put them on the show notes uh, part of the podcast so that you can have that as a reference. So next time, we're going to keep this conversation about prevention going.
2: Yeah, so as well as having that chat with James Vickers, I've also spoken to a clinician geriatrician, Kate Grigorovich who's got a really strong focus on encouraging women in their 40s to really engage in some positive health
3: changes. We often think of the 40s and 50s of being the sandwich generation, where women in particular are supporting young children and ageing parents. But this is a message of getting people to start thinking early about healthy ageing and how important it is.
0: And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au, or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook, or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
3: If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or a carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au.
2: Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.